Hello and welcome to episode 59 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. As I recorded this episode before heading away from civilization with no phone or any other communication device to spend Christmas on a beach, I can't thank any new Patreon supporters. So if you have supported me on Patreon this week, thank you ever so much and I'll mention you when I'm back. So what I will do is take this opportunity to thank everyone who's listened to this podcast during 2017. I've had a lot of fun doing it and I hope to keep it going well into 2018. Thank you again for your support and for listening to this podcast. Today I am once more indebted to Chris Wood for researching this really interesting case. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. We go back to 1997. If you recall, 1997 was some huge events, some of which had a massive impact upon the UK. On the first day of May, Tony Blair's Labour Party crushed the Tories under the then Prime Minister John Major. (laughs) You know, just his name brings back horrible thoughts about his affair with Edwina Curry. (sighs) Labour's landslide victory saw them win an incredible 418 seats. Do you remember the hope that swept the country when Blair walked into Downing Street? Three months on from this victory, the world endured one of those you'll never forget where you were or what you were doing moments. On the 31st of August, in the early hours of the morning, Princess Diana was tragically killed in a car crash in Paris with the Harrods heir, Dodi Fayed. The world was plunged seemingly into a frenzy of grief up until the funeral in early September. If you're in the UK and you're one of the handful of people who still read the Daily Express newspaper, you can still read about this death daily. So where were you? Obviously, I was too young to recall. Okay, so I was driving to a sailing event in the wilds of Essex at Burnham on Crouch. What were you up to? The day before Princess Diana's funeral saw another sad death. On September the 5th, Mother Teresa died. Honoured and decorated for her charity work, the Catholic nun and missionary was 87 years old when she died. Two lives within the space of a week sadly ended, but their legacies live on. A little-known author called J.K. Rowling had a Harry Potter book published in June of this year, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Stories about a wizard boy? No, it's never going to catch on, was it? The UK gained its fifth terrestrial television channel as Channel 5 was launched. 20 years on, we're still waiting for something decent to air on the channel. And even now, you can still hear the gags that this is the very best place for criminals on the run to hide. In music this year, Elton John's Candle in the Wind tribute song played at Princess Diana's funeral, unsurprisingly topped the charts for the longest period, spending five weeks at number one. If that wasn't enough, the end of the year brought two other musical delights to the UK, as Aqua's Barbie Girl and the Teletubbies both spent four and two weeks respectively at the summit of the charts. Oh my goodness, I seem to talk about Aqua every week. Time to move on, I think. Hammersmith is an extremely popular district to the west of London. I've got one tip. If you're driving there, always leave four times longer than you expect. It's always just so clogged up with traffic. Viewed as one of the city's key commercial and employment centres, Hammersmith also boasts being the birthplace of some of our most famous actors. 
Helen Mirren, Hugh Grant and the late Alan Rickman among them. Significantly to this particular case, Hammersmith has for some time housed one of the largest Polish communities within the city. Trzecie Koniva had moved his family from Macedonia to Hammersmith in 1995. At this time, Macedonia was part of the war-torn Balkans area in Eastern Europe and Trzecie had hoped that this move would protect his wife, Zaklina, and their 12-year-old daughter, Katerina, from the ethnic violence that was occurring in their native Macedonia. In the cruelest of ironic fates, this move would sadly end in the most horrendous tragedy. May the 22nd was much like any other day for the Keneva family. Katerina was at her Holland Park school, where she was described as a bright and a quiet girl who was doing well. Her mother was out of a friend, while Trajsa had been diligently studying English at a local college. He was a mature student, learning the language of the country where they decided to settle. One thing that was a little out of the ordinary on May the 22nd was that Trajsa had been delayed at college as he'd had an exam that day and it had overran. This meant that his daughter Katerina had been left at the family home alone having returned from school. In itself, this wouldn't have caused any undue alarm or fear for Trajsa, but in order to try to let his daughter know that he'd soon be home with her, he tried to call her before he set off from the college, and he was a little concerned when Katerina did not answer. This slightly worried Trajsa, who subsequently raced home on his bike. He arrived home at the family's first floor flat at around 4.30pm. The front door was open, but inside the house, he found that the living room door had been barricaded with a chair. Trajsa knocked on the door, thinking that perhaps his daughter was changing in the room and had deliberately shut the door for privacy. He shouted through the door, but he received no response. But he knew his daughter was in there, and he later recalled that he could hear noises from inside the sitting room. He peered through the keyhole, and he saw Katerina's school bag on the floor. Having failed to shoulder barge the door open, he knelt down to look under the door, and to his horror, he realised that Katerina was not alone in the room. He could see a pair of men's black shoes. I don't think we can possibly imagine how he must have felt at this point. His blood must have run cold amid this bizarre and frightening situation. The fear of the unknown must have been so prevalent in his mind, and also not wanting to believe that something sinister was occurring in the living room, and hoping beyond hope that there was an innocent explanation, and it was ordinary. Despite the terror and confusion he was feeling, Trajsa had the presence of mind to realise that whoever was in the room with his daughter could only escape through the window, having barricaded the door. Frantically, Trajsa ran out of the flat where he was confronted with a terrifying sight of a strange man climbing out of his living room window, clutching a bag. The two men came face to face in a neighbour's garden. The intruder, with a glazed look on his face, simply stared at Trejsa. As the man fixed his glare at him, Trejsa repeatedly queried what he was doing in his house. The man ignored the question, instead revealing a knife before turning and running off down the street. At this point, it's worth remembering that this was all happening in broad daylight. It was a beautiful May afternoon in London, with people just going about their daily business. 
As the mysterious man fled, Trachta sprinted after him desperately. As the pursuit progressed and moved further from their flat, Trachta had almost caught up with him before the stranger began yelling for help, feigning that it was him that needed assistance. And sadly, this came in the guise of two workmen who intervened, warning Trachta to leave the man alone. Trachta decided at that point to run back home as quickly as possible and see what happened with his daughter, rather than attempt to explain the circumstances of why he'd been chasing the strange man. We must remember that Trachta's English was not brilliant, and amid the stress and fear he must have felt, we can only imagine how we may have reacted if we'd been faced with such a bizarre situation. Trachta arrived back at the flat at approximately 4.50pm and immediately rushed to the living room where he kicked through the door. Tragically, lying on the floor was Katerina, unconscious. She'd been strangled with a piece of cord, which had been pulled so tightly that Trachta could not release it with his hands, but he needed a knife from the kitchen to cut it free. All the while, the grief-stricken father was calling his daughter's name, desperate for her to regain consciousness. The police had now arrived, and together with Trachta, Officers tried in vain to resuscitate the young girl, but sadly it was to no avail, and Katerina died at the scene. As we know, the person responsible for this murder had fled the flat. And as we also know, having heard many times on this podcast before, murders of this vein are seldom committed by strangers. Usually they're found to be known to the victim, even family members. These variables confounded to create a further heartbreaking element to the case. Police, frankly, found Tragster's story of a stranger at the flat and escaping through a window rather fanciful, and so they initially placed him as the prime suspect. He was taken to a nearby police station for questioning, and his wife and six-year-old son were brought to see him. Tragster was dressed by this point in a white forensic suit, which initially led his wife, Zakalina, to believe that he had in fact killed their daughter. This is horrible to comprehend, isn't it, and disturbing. At this point, how alone must this man have felt? He was in a strange country, his daughter had just been murdered, and he was under suspicion of a crime he did not commit. And now here he was with his wife yelling and screaming at him, accusing him of murdering their eldest child. Mercifully, however, within a few hours... The innocent father was released to several eyewitness accounts and CCTV footage, which caught the chase, substantiated his story. Police also found fingerprints from the intruder left around the flat and also around the window from which he made his hasty escape. With this, police were hoping for a swift capture of whoever had so brutally killed Katerina. At least seven eyewitnesses saw the man running away from the scene and the photo fits of the man were circulated into the public domain. It soon became apparent that a man fitting the description of Katerina's attacker had been seen only minutes before her death following another 12-year-old to her home. Even standing and staring at the property for several minutes before eventually deciding to leave. But despite the fact that the police had a number of positive leads and identifications of the attacker, they led nowhere. Police even took the step of broadcasting three separate appeals on the BBC's Crime Watch programme, 
but still the trail went cold. Indeed, it would be another six years before the perpetrator was finally apprehended. Right back at the beginning of this episode, I touched on the fact that Hammersmith has for many years been a popular place where a large Polish community have settled. Clearly, the huge majority of these people would have moved to the area under the correct and legal means, and there is no suggestion of anything otherwise here. However, one illegal immigrant from Poland named Andrzej Konowski had made his way to the West London district and had also been committing further illegal and more sinister acts whilst in the UK. Konowski, 45 at this time and working as a tailor in nearby Acton, had been found guilty at the Old Bailey of raping a foreign student in 2002. Showing all the hallmarks of a predator, Konowski had spotted the student at a tube station in London looking at adverts of possible rooms to rent in the area. Telling the girl that there was a vacant bedsit at his nearby flat, Konowski lured the girl to his own flat instead, where he repeatedly raped her for three hours. That she was able to survive this ordeal and be spared her life was down only to her agreeing to promise to phone her attacker the next day. When tried at the Old Bailey, the jury rejected his rather implausible tale that the victim had consented to the sex as a thank you for helping her find somewhere to stay. Kanowski was given nine years in prison. It was while he was serving this sentence that detectives checked his DNA and found it to be a match of a hair that was found on the cardigan that Katerina had been wearing back in 1997 when she was killed. Not only this, but his fingerprints were also found to be a match to those found on the window when he escaped from Katerina's flat. The trial brought to light many disturbing aspects from both Katerina's murder and also in relation to her killer's grisly past. When Katerina's father, Trajda, was asked to give evidence on that fateful day, he understandably broke down as he described how he and a police officer had tried to resuscitate his daughter. It was made clear that Katerina would have opened the door to her attacker, assuming it was her daddy coming home. And on that particular day, she couldn't wait to tell him that she was top of her English class. We found out about how well she had done afterwards. She never got to tell us herself, Trajda said. The cowardly Kanowski denied murder, claiming it was all a case of mistaken identity. But thankfully the jury of four women and eight men saw through this and took two and a half hours to reach their verdict of guilty of murder. The bespectacled Kanowski stood impassively in the dock as Judge Peter Beaumont told him that he would be failing in his duty if he did not ensure that Kanowski spent the rest of his life in prison. As he was led to the cells, Kanowski applauded himself. I mean, what a jerk. Just again showing his utter disregard and respect for anyone other than himself. Good riddance. Following the trial, which had ultimately achieved the desired outcome, albeit after six years, many aspects about Kanowski and how he came to be in the UK, as well as his previous convictions, came to light. Prosecutors in his native Poland had actually been preparing to charge him for a whole string of sex attacks that had astonishingly stretched back over 30 years. The young Kanowski had displayed abnormal traits as a child, 
even unnerving his own mother, as he would often stare at young pretty girls in a trance-like fashion. Reflecting back now, it's clear that this behaviour wasn't dissimilar to how he'd been behaving prior to Katerina's murder. It was revealed that as far back as the 1970s, Kanowski had been committing dreadful sex attacks which saw him serve prison sentences across the decade. Following his release from prison in April 1978, he spent the rest of that year sexually assaulting women and girls. Indeed, in 1978 alone, he carried out 15 rapes. Yeah, you heard correctly, 15 rapes in that year. By 1980, the Polish press had aptly christened him the Beast and he was jailed once more, but this time for 15 years. Chillingly, in a precursor to Katerina's murder in 1997, only two years before this in Warsaw, he tricked his way into the home of a 10-year-old girl claiming to be a friend of her father's and asking if he could wait in the house until he returned. Once in the house, he repeatedly raped the girl while throttling her of a telephone cord. That young girl was extremely lucky to escape with her life, but now Kanowski was ready to commit the ultimate crime, and thanks to some horrendous decisions from the Polish judiciary, he was able to do just that. Kanowski had been charged with this latest rape, as well as a host of others, but rather than keep the beast in custody, awaiting trial for these crimes, the judge in Poland inexplicably granted him bail to have a hip operation. Behind the scenes, as police were mounting a watertight case to ensure he was locked up again, Kanowski escaped hospital. Apparently, and somewhat absurdly, he simply walked out of the hospital and into freedom. And this set in motion a chain of events that would see the monster Kanowski enter the UK and enable him to carry out the murder of Katerina. Upon his arrival in London, Kanowski certainly did not present himself physically as someone that could be capable of such evil. Diminutive in stature at 5'3", he always appeared well-groomed and smart. In Poland, he was even nicknamed the Little Doctor, He'd purchased a fake Portuguese passport and masqueraded as a tourist in London and he was soon blending in anonymously with the millions of other faces. When the authorities in Poland realised that he'd fled, an international warrant was issued through Interpol. Interpol held Kanowski's fingerprints and photographs and were available to the UK authorities. But sadly he wasn't fingerprinted when he arrived in the UK and so was ultimately free to find more victims to prey upon. It really seems implausible, doesn't it, that such a hunted man was able to enter this country with the huge list of offences he had behind him. DCI David Little was the senior detective investigating Katerina's murder and he offered an insight into the difficulties the police had in tracking Kanowski down. As Kanowski was an illegal immigrant, he had been forensically invisible. What this equates to is if the person doesn't exist, then you can't bring him to justice. DCI Little did also go on to assert that Kanowski was probably the most dangerous sex offender he'd come across, and certainly the most prolific. With this in mind, 
It is little wonder that Katerina's family felt that justice had not prevailed. Following the verdict, Katerina's mum said, I find it impossible to understand how he was allowed into the UK to commit this crime. I do not feel that justice has been done. In truth, in such a horrific case as this, how could justice ever really be done? It's an eternal question around crime and punishment. Is there a suitable penalty for a perpetrator such as Kanowski? Someone who has shown no remorse for his crimes and furthermore has a lengthy list of previous sexual assaults which ultimately culminated in the death of Katerina. Judge Beaumont described Katerina as a child of great promise. Her father, Tragedy, echoed similar sentiments. He said his daughter worked so hard and because of that she was the best at everything. Maths, music, sport and all her friends loved her. What she could have been, who knows what she could have achieved in her life. And speaking about Kanowski, Tragedy simply said, This is not a man. It's a monster without feelings. Animals don't kill like that, without reason. And it's hard to argue with this. If there's any ray of light to emerge in the aftermath of this tragedy, it's surely that Kanowski will never be free again to commit such savagery. Incarcerated at Her Majesty's pleasure is how he will see out the rest of his days and the little doctor's reign of terror is now over. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. Thanks again to Chris Wood for bringing this really interesting story to our attention. Please join us on Facebook to discuss this story and all other aspects of UK True Crime. Just search UK True Crime on Facebook. And to support the show, please head to patreon.com slash UK True Crime. There you'll have access to 10 full-length bonus episodes and other exclusive content, all for less than £3 a month. What a bargain. As this is the last show for 2017, I must thank you all again for listening to the podcast this year, and I hope that for you all, 2018 turns out to be the year you want it to be. Until we speak again next week, thanks again for listening, and I look forward to speaking soon. Cheerio for now.